this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. Uh, the podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes. Yeah. And here we are on a Sunday night. Oh, yeah. Dealing with technology. Yes. And stuff. And supposedly great internet service that mm. sucks. My theory about why, I think it's because... You live in a congested area. I bet you there are people all over the place feeding off other people's internet. And that's why your internet isn't that good. Probably. That's my theory. But yeah, I do have an update. Are we going to get right to it? I guess so. Unless you have... Oh, I had something I wanted to say. Okay. There were two things. They were both mask related. The first one I noticed, which is going to sound kind of stupid but mm. almost every year i get at least one really bad cold if not more than one or the flu and this year i have not gotten i've gotten maybe the sniffles i haven't gotten anything that bad and i usually get at least one because i have a crappy immune system and so i'm sure that it's because of all the preventative measures everyone's taking i'm sure it's it just, is i just I, mean, I just realized yeah it's march and usually in november i get a really bad one and in february and i'm like you know what i didn't get my bad cold this year so in other words maybe i'll just wear a mask all the time in other words the obvious science is working the way it's supposed to i know to. but uh, just saying and the other thing i noticed about masks is you know i work in a store where i see people constantly we've been doing this for almost a year now and maine has had the mask mandate since june i think so i have some customers that i've never seen without a mask and i noticed that when people come in who i know from before mask wearing and they have a mask on sometimes i don't recognize them like my old boss came in and he was wearing like a winter hat and glasses and a mask and it took me <laughs> it took me even though i had worked with him for five years every day he's like it's me and i was like oh my god but then the people who i've only seen with the mask on i recognize right away i just thought it was weird i mean yeah well it might seem like common sense but i just i just noticed it one day i'm like you know what like it's so weird that i didn't recognize this one guy and then this other yeah. customer so that i hardly know i recognized right away and then i realized i'd so only yeah, seen him with another the mask on. so another totally obvious thing if somebody's half of somebody's face is covered their eyes are covered because they have sunglasses or whatever on and they have a hat on you can't recognize them i know but he had he didn't have sunglasses on he had glasses oh, okay. which so. he wore once in a while he wore off and on when we worked together oh. but it was just because no it's not just him there's been other no, people too that I, I know but right. because there are must be other mental cues about their face that you know right. i think you just get used to you get used to somebody a certain way yes it's just it was just a weird re- realization that's yes, all it's tr- so do you have any updates i do it's Kind of an update to episode 77, the Black Women's Lives Matter episode, and also episode 81, which was kind of an update episode and updates to update. So I'm sure that's piqued everybody's interest to the point where they're all wanting to turn us off and listen to something else. Oh, everybody's excited. Yeah. In episode 81, the update edition we did, I was talking about the Breonna Taylor case and stuff, but I also brought up a case that really illustrates how the rules are just different for black people, both men and women, making criminals out of people who didn't commit a crime. Mm-hmm. It just continues to be more and more relevant because you realize how little people, some people have an understanding of this. So that's kind of the intro for this update. 
And I also mentioned this in our last episode, just in passing, but there's actually been a development. Quick summary. Last June, Victor White, a 32-year-old cook at Tufts University in Medford, Mass., was sitting on his front porch in Lynn, Massachusetts, drinking beer with some friends when police showed up, saying they were responding to a noise complaint. The cops thought the guy shouldn't be drinking on the porch, and White pointed out correctly that it's legal to drink beer on his own porch. But before he knew it, he and his two friends were being dragged off the porch, handcuffed, and brought down to the police station. Mm-hmm. They're all black, by the way. The cops are white in this. Mm-hmm. They were first charged with public drinking, which is the first big bogus thing about this because he was on his porch and you're allowed to drink on your porch. And I think I've mentioned that many times since this first came up late last summer. But at the jail, White was asked to take off his COVID mask. And he didn't want to because he was in a jail, a notorious COVID spreading area. And so a white officer started Mm. beating the shit out of him. And um, one of the cops, uh, Matthew Coppinger, in a police report, described White as obnoxious and, quote, highly resistant prisoner. Coppinger wrote that he stepped in to assist the officers and de-escalate. Mm. And in classic cop form, his de-escalization was also to start beating the crap out of White. <laughs> he said that White swore, yelled, and otherwise hindered and resisted nearly all aspects of the booking process, unquote. He said White refused to remove the mask, which seems to be the big sticking point of the whole thing, which, of course, you want to beat the shit out of somebody for. Because they're not allowed to wear masks in their cells, which probably explains why so much of the jail and prison population has COVID-19. But anyway, if you listen to the episode where I first talked about this, this should be a little familiar to you. Quote, we gave him one final chance and told him the mask would be removed from him by us if he did not do so, Coppinger wrote in his report. White didn't remove the mask, so Coppinger and another cop, quote, guided White onto the floor to, quote, uh-huh. stop his violent behavior, <laughs> Coppinger's report said. They fought, and finally the officers physically removed his mask and locked the cell. White was charged with assault and battery on a police officer, resisting arrest, disorderly conduct, as well as the public drinking charge. So you can see how he wasn't doing anything wrong, and because of police behavior, all of a sudden he was facing five charges. The charges were later dropped, and the Essex County DA launched an independent investigation. The cop, Matthew Coppinger, resigned back before I did my last report on this, and he told the Boston Globe that he followed department policies and procedures during the altercation, but that Lim Police, quote, needed a scapegoat given the current environment around policing. Mm -hmm. It's a tough time to be a cop, he said. Well, now Coppinger is facing charges. He's due to be arraigned sometime this month, March. The last story on it was a couple weeks ago on February 25th and said a date hadn't been set yet. And those charges are assault and battery for using what a special prosecutor said was excessive force and was well over the line of what he should have used. He faces two and a half years in prison if he's Hmm. convicted. The judge's decision to try him came after a video of the attack on White was shown at a show cause hearing on February 25th in a Salem Mass courtroom. It was moved to Salem from nearby Lynn because the court wanted to avoid an appearance of favoritism for Coppinger, who's a Lynn native and whose uncle, Kevin Coppinger, was previously chief of police in the city and now is the Essex County Sheriff. 
Coppinger is also a um, veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, the Globe story pointed out. It didn't elaborate, and sometimes you wonder why that information is necessary. Though I do think it's interesting because police departments like to hire these military guys. This information comes from a Boston Globe uh-huh. story by Tom Grillo. Essex County Attorney Jonathan Blodgett said at the hearing, quote, it's clear from the video and Mr. White's testimony that he was struck numerous times. The statute that allows police to use reasonable force does not allow them to strike an individual in the face in a jail cell. White's attorney, Patrick Chioa, said... And I think this is a quote to the Boston Globe after the hearing. Since day one, Victor has called for Officer Coppinger to be held accountable for his egregious conduct. The video speaks for itself. Victor was gratuitously assaulted in a jail cell and then falsely accused of assault and battery, a crime he did not commit, by the same officer who beat him. Victor looks forward to this matter proceeding to criminal court. Ken Anderson, Coppinger's attorney, told the court that Coppinger was justified in striking White because, he said, White repeatedly refused to comply with commands. Mm. Anderson told The Globe, probable cause is a very low threshold and we look forward to defending this in a setting, meaning a courtroom, where all the evidence will be presented. During his presentation in court, The Globe reports, Anderson stopped the video at several points. I forgot to mention that this hearing was what is known as a clerk-magistrate hearing, which is usually held behind closed doors, and they're traditionally used in Massachusetts when a police officer, or in this case a former one, is charged with a crime. The Boston Globe has written extensively about how law enforcement in Massachusetts, particularly Boston area, uses these magistrate hearings to secretly look at charges against police. But the Globe filed an appeal to get this hearing made public. Uh, And I'm sorry, I meant to mention that earlier. During his presentation in court, the Globe reports, Anderson, Coppinger's attorney, stopped the video at several points to show images depicting what he said were White reaching for Coppinger's weapon. But White and the prosecutor (laughs) said the moves were defensive. White testified, I instinctively put my hand up and I was struck with an elbow or a fist on my head, neck, legs, stomach, and shoulder, and I yelled for help. And as I said in episode 81... That all over the U.S., even now, even with all the Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name awareness, these things are going on with little accountability for the police. Racism in law enforcement creates quote-unquote crime that doesn't really exist. Police look for reasons to harass and arrest black people. And then when the black people exercise their rights to ask why they're being arrested, or in this poor guy's case, to wear his friggin' COVID mask, and they're beaten, <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. Ugh. If it hadn't been for all the publicity over the summer, White likely would still be charged with all those counts, and Coppinger likely would just be going around doing what he does best. And I'm sick of hearing about the war on cops, or whatever you want to call it, or, as I've repeatedly said, this whole most cops are good thing. The issue is that many cops find reasons to treat people differently, and they don't see anything wrong with it, and they rationalize it. And this is all about people beginning to recognize what the issues are. In a related note, as we record this, the U.S. House of Representatives voted 220 to 212 to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which reforms qualified immunity for police officers, which basically is a policy that says that they can't be held accountable for perceived crimes they may commit while they're on the job. And it's gotten a lot of police officers off the hook for shooting, beating, or doing other things to black people and others. 
It also prohibits no-knock warrants in federal drug cases, outlaws racial profiling, and good luck, good luck with that, because you have to know what it is to stop doing it, and also would establish a national registry of police misconduct that would be managed by the Department of Justice. In an interesting note, Axios reported that Texas Representative Lance Gooden, a Republican, was the only Republican to vote in favor, but later tweeted, and this tweet has since been deleted, that he didn't mean to vote for it, but accidentally pressed the wrong button and then realized it was too late. Yeah. The no-knock warrant thing is kind of an extension of Brianna's law, which was passed in Louisville, Kentucky in June and bans no-knock warrants in general in that city. The one before Congress only bans them in federal drug cases, but it's nationwide. The state of Virginia passed a statewide Brianna's law in the fall, and other states are considering them. The Louisville Courier-Journal found last year that that city's police department, in the two years before the law was passed, 82% of the city police department's no-knock warrants were for suspects who were black, and 68% were in the West End, which is a predominantly black neighborhood. And if you haven't listened to episode 77 or our many updates since then, or watched the news or read any newspapers in the last year, Brianna Taylor was killed <laughs> when police raided her apartment on what was initially a no-knock warrant, though they claim that they did knock. But in any case, if they did and politely said they were the police, Brianna and her boyfriend Ken Walker didn't hear them because they thought somebody was breaking into the apartment. Ken Walker, like so many white men before him, even though he's black, stood his ground and shot at the intruders as they burst through the door, but they were cops. And they opened fire, killing Taylor, an innocent woman who'd been training to be an emergency medical technician, who had no criminal record or history of drug use or any other reason for the police to burst into her apartment with no warning and shoot her dead. Police killed 1,127 people in the U.S. in 2020, according to the Mapping Police Violence Project. 28% of them were black, despite the fact that only 13% of the U.S. population is black. Jared Golden, one of Maine's two U.S. representatives, was one of two Democrats to vote against the Floyd bill. He's a veteran and said he knows what it's like to make split-second decisions and he wanted to support the police in that regard. And Golden did say the bill had a lot to recommend it, but I guess not enough for him to vote for it. I think people with that point of view miss the bigger picture, that those, quote, split-second decisions seem to veer more toward killing black people than white people. And extreme measures have to be taken to get rid of systemic racism and policing, since most white people don't seem to even recognize it's there, since we never hear police or rarely hear police departments say, yes, we're going about this wrong, since you never hear police departments say when they shoot an unarmed black person, gosh, maybe we were wrong and we need to rethink how we do this. They, they always say they're justified, even not shooting people like the thing with Victor White, you don't hear any of the police saying, you know, that was wrong. They shouldn't have treated that guy that way. He had mm -hmm. a right to sit on his porch and drink a beer like any other white guy in Massachusetts is doing or was doing in the summer. And because of these rationalizations, the lack of understanding, the lack of admitting this systemic issue that's been going on for 400 years in this country now, that these things are necessary. I think... About our episode last week about Janetta Carr, our episode 77, and all the other ones that have highlighted how the system is skewed against black men and women, and people just keep denying it. I can't imagine how we can get beyond that without measures like the George Floyd bill. Mm -hmm. 
We and can't. That's my update. Thank you. We're not going to get beyond it until we until we admit it. Right. This whole kind of black and white, and I don't mean black and white as races. I mean the way people perceive how cops behave. Oh, there's all these good ones, and then there's a few bad ones, and the bad ones get all the attention. That's not the issue. The issue is that the entire system believes the way it approaches black people as less than human, as criminals before they've committed a crime, is wrong. And if people aren't going to recognize it on their own, they have to be forced to because the problem is those people have guns and they're using them to kill people. Or they have Mm -hmm. authority and they're using it to beat the shit out of people or just arrest people for no good reason. Like I said last last episode with Johnetta Carr, how many Johnetta Carrs are there? in the United States, who are in jail because the cops were just too too lazy and corrupt to find the right person who did the crime. And it's easy to railroad a black girl. How many Victor Whites are there who were not doing anything wrong, but the cops just don't think a black man should be able to sit on his own porch and drink a beer, so he ends up with five charges against him in jail? Mm-hmm. You know, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling that people don't get it. And I'm pissed off about it i can tell so anyway on that note (laughs) yes do you have a story to tell us tonight yes i do and you don't know what it is i don't i can't wait to find out since you read the boston globe all the time most of my information came from the boston excellent can i just say something about that yes i have been reading the boston globe almost every day since june of 1973 Nice. When we were living at Camp Recompense Campground in Freeport, Maine, and I went with mom to the laundromat, and, you know, there was a convenience store next door, and there was one of those racks with newspapers, and there had been a plane crash the day before in Boston that had killed everybody. So I bought the paper because I wanted to read about the plane crash, and I've been a loyal Boston Globe reader ever since. You know what's a weird coincidence is I just drove through there yesterday and I told Hannah, I said, you know, when we first moved to Maine, we lived here. Yeah, and now it's part of Wolf's Neck. It's, yeah, it's Wolf's Neck Farm now. Yeah, but anyway. Okay, so, yeah, so you might know this story as I tell it. So. Okay. Also, if people heard Khabibi purring, she was in my lap. She's not anymore. She's not feeling well, so I didn't want to oh, kick her out of my poor lap. poor kitty cat. Yeah, so I got most of it from the Boston Globe. Some of it I got I got little things here and there from Washington Post, BostonLive.com, Boston Herald, and WHDH-TV, which is seven news, I think. I had a hard time figuring out how to tell this story. So if it seems like there's no point yet, you just wait. It'll catch up. <laughs> it'll, it'll make sense. Okay. My internet sucks, so if sometimes... One of our responses seems to not make sense. It's because of our delay, just for a disclaimer. But if mom was going, right in the (laughs) middle of me saying something or vice versa, that's why. I just want to warn people. The good thing about this remote recording is our sound is better. But the bad thing is that we're not in the moment with each other as much as we could be. That's right. On June 5th, 2000, the Boston Globe had a story with the headline, Community Leaders Fear Return to Gang Violence. The story was about how ministers and police were going to meet to have an exchange of information in an attempt to prevent Boston area streets from returning to the violence they'd experienced in the 1980s and 1990s. In those years, dozens of young people, people under 18, were killed due to gang fighting and hundreds were hospitalized. The story related an incident in which a large group of kids from the Crips gang 
were gathered in a Mattapan parking lot. Mattapan is a neighborhood of Boston, by the way. So they were in this parking lot ready to fight another gang. The Reverend Sean Harrison stepped up and said, Listen, you're angry. You're upset. You're not thinking straight. The best thing you can do is go home and cool off. Let's squash it. According to the story, it worked. The kids left and there was no fight. But the Reverend Harrison, along with other ministers, police, and street workers, were worried that the peace wouldn't last. Sean Harrison told the Boston Globe, It's going to be a hot summer, and I don't think we're ready to deal with it. (laughs) Do you like my impersonation of him? I do. I have no idea what he really talks like. The coalition was forming a program called Operation 2006, which would target elementary and middle school kids to try to nip gang activity in the bud. Later that summer, on July 23rd, the Globe had an article with the headline, Danger Signals. Some fear shooting of 12-year-old girl in Dorchester may indicate the coming of a new wave of youth violence to the city. The story was about Lasonia Williams, who was shot while sitting on a porch with her 14-year-old brother. The shooter was a schoolmate of the brother, and they were fighting over a girl. Lasonia was only wounded, fortunately. The upshot of the story was similar to the one in June, that younger kids were getting involved in gangs. That the Boston Miracle, as the lapse in gang violence had been called, may be ending. The Globe reported that the Reverend Sean Harrison was the head of a pilot program called Mattapan 2006, which was aimed at at helping at-risk children under the age of 14. The significance of the year 2006 is that that was the year gang experts felt that the number of teenagers would peak, causing a surge in crime if they went the wrong way. The Reverend Harrison said, These are not gangbangers. They're little wannabes. You're talking 13, 14, 15 year old kids. They're trying to be like Castlegate, Humboldt, Intervale gangs from the old days. Trying to act like grown-ups when they're really just boys. On January 11, 2001, the Reverend Sean Harrison was featured in the Boston Globe again in an article with the headline, Seeking a Voice, Some Say Clergy Must Challenge Police Shooting. The article was about an incident in which a Boston municipal police officer, Kyle Wilcox, shot and killed Ricky Bodden in Mattapan. Ricky Bodden was 29 and from Dorchester, the neighborhood next to Mattapan. Wilcox was 23 and had been on the job for only two years. The shooting took place the day after Michael McDermott shot seven workers in Wakefield, Massachusetts, which we discussed in episode five. That tragedy overshadowed Ricky's killing. You know, that happened December 27th, I think, because Mucko was the 26th. And so this article was on on January 11th. The shooting kind of went underreported because of that Wakefield shooting. In the article, the Reverend Sean Harrison tells the Globe that some things about the shooting gave him pause. For instance, although Officer Wilcox said that Ricky had pointed a gun at him, a 45, with a sanded off serial number, Ricky was shot in the back of the neck. The police said that Ricky was standing with some friends and he assumed it was a drug deal. The officer assumed it. It looked like Ricky was smoking a joint. The officer approached the three young men and asked what was up. He wanted to search them. Ricky was actually smoking a cigarette, but he ran and was chased and shot. He had no drugs on him, but supposedly he had the gun. The Reverend Harrison told the paper that what really unsettled him about the whole matter was that no one questioned the shooting, especially his fellow clergy. He said, I just don't understand why there's no outrage. I see people saying he was a bad kid. He had a record. He had a gun. That's what you get. But he was still a human being. The clergy is supposed to be in the business of saving lives. 
Reverend Harrison wondered if the cooperation that the police and clergy had enjoyed in recent years due to their collaboration in trying to stop gang violence had caused him and his fellow pastors to go soft on police. He said, quote, I'm just as guilty as anyone. I didn't say anything at first, but it seems like no one's willing to ask questions and maybe disrupt the relationship we have. A subsequent article in the Boston Globe about a week later reported that Officer Kyle Wilcox had only been allowed to carry a gun for a couple of months. He had been a site officer prior to graduating from certified police training, which means he was kind of like a security guard up until two months before shooting Ricky Bunn. A group of ministers, city officials, and activists wanted to meet with police commissioner Paul Evans to ask questions about the circumstances of the shooting. A week after that, another Globe article talked about the shooting in a meeting with police superintendent and chief James Huzzy. Huzzy told the Globe that working with the ACLU, the clergy, and activists helped police do a better job. While some of the people at the meeting called for Kyle Wilcox to be charged with murder, Reverend Sean Harrison told the paper. I think the department is working on this case, but they want to be thorough, and I think everyone agrees with that. Maybe this officer didn't have enough training, or he reacted out of fear, not malice. Hmm. At the end of March 2001, there was another article about the shooting and the two young men involved. How they both had similar upbringings, had been brought up, quote, on the same mean streets, Hmm. and both were black. The story was about how one chose a life of crime while the other chose to be a police officer and a pastry chef. He was both. At the time, Kyle Wilcox, the police officer, was on paid leave at his Roxbury home while the shooting was being investigated. Reverend Sean Harris was quoted, Was it an awful mistake? Probably. But I don't see the point in crucifying this officer. I just want to know what happened. In that, there are real questions. While my story isn't about this particular shooting, I looked a bit to see what happened with Kyle Wilcox. It looks like he remained a police officer at least until 2007, when he was fired by the Lawrence, Massachusetts police for excessive force. He seemed to target Latinos. At the end of, of June 2001, a headline in the Globe said, Firearms seizures increase in Boston, gun crimes down, but police fear rise in traffic. The article said 14 guns have been confiscated in the previous two weeks from the Dorchester, Mattapan, Roxbury areas, where gang activity and youth violence have been on the rise. Sean Harrison, who was at the time described as executive director of the Youth in Crisis Ministry, told the paper he had noticed an increase in guns and ammunition on the streets, but he said the clergy, working with police, had been able to confiscate the guns before they could be used. The Reverend Harrison said, quote, I think the younger ones are getting the message that if you shoot someone, you're going to do time. In May 2002, the Boston Globe had an article headline, State Panel to Review the T-Police, New Task Force Will Investigate Complaints of Racial Profiling. This panel was in response to allegations that the MBTA police force, and for those of you who don't know, the MBTA stands for Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority, and the subway is called the T for short. Anyway, allegations that the MBTA police force routinely targeted minorities, especially young people of color. A lot of civil rights groups said the task force, which included ministers, youth workers, academics, crime specialists, was too little too late. Sean Harrison, who was at the time described as executive director of the Youth in Crisis Ministry, was a member of the task force. He said the task force's purpose was not to out bad officers, but rather establish lines of communication between the police force and the public. He said this is all about getting dialogue. We need the MBTA police and they need us. But until both sides see that, there will be frictions. On July 7th, 2002, which was my birthday, the Sunday Boston Globe had a big spread on the front page of its city and region section with two headlines. One was, Mourning an Angel Who Fell to Stray Shots. 
and the other was recharging the Boston Miracle, and they were side by side. They talked about the death of 10-year-old Trina Persad, who was shot near the gates of Germain Goffigan Park in Roxbury. She was walking home with family members the Saturday evening of the previous weekend when a stray bullet from a drive-by shooting hit her in the head. She died at the hospital two days later when her family decided to remove her from life support. And just an aside, Germain Goffigan Park is named for a nine-year-old boy who was killed in a gang-related shooting in 1994 while he was trick-or-treating. The two young men arrested for Trina's shooting were a 17-year-old and a 23-year-old, both gang members. The companion article talked about how Boston needed to revive the Boston Miracle, about a program in which clergy, social workers, and prosecutors talk to former gang members coming out of jail, and how they do a good cop, bad cop thing on them. The ministers and social workers talked about substance abuse, counseling, and job opportunities. The prosecutors tried to scare them with the hefty sentences they could face. I've got my own opinions about this approach, but that's another story for another day. Mm-hmm. In the article about Trina's death, the Reverend Sean Harrison lamented the few dozen attendees at Trina's funeral. Quote, there should have been thousands of people out here. A 10-year-old girl? Gang violence? That should make you angry. Sean Harrison knew one of the young shooters charged in Trina's killing. He'd worked with him as part of the Youth at Risk program. He tried to get Joseph Cousin, the shooter, to stay off the streets. But Reverend Harrison told the Globe, a caseworker can only take on so many kids. People need to get out there on the street and talk to the kids on the corner. A June 12, 2004 headline read, Gunshots Resurrect Old Fears at Bromley Heath. Bromley Heath in the Jamaica Plain area of Boston is the nation's first tenant-run public housing project. In 1999, a massive police raid had been conducted there to rid the complex of a crack cocaine network. Things were supposed to be safe after that. But recently, the article said gunshots have been heard again around the community of 700 families. On May 10, 2004, 37-year-old Napoleon Mabin known as Junebug, was shot in a drive-by shooting on the Heath Street side of the complex. Gangs from neighboring Academy Homes and Mission Hill housing developments have been fighting over drug-selling territories. Sean Harrison called a pastor and a youth worker in this article saying, three at war, boom, 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 end quote. Mm. Another article on the same page says, Roxbury boy dies, city's 27th homicide. If you recall, Roxbury is right in the same area and part of the Reverend Sean Harrison's domain. On November 20th, 2005, the Boston Globe carried this short article, which I'll read in its entirety, because I was trying to quote it, and there was just... I ended up... I'll just read it. It's fine. Because it was silly, I thought. Just the way it's written is annoying. Wednesday, the Reverend's deal went down. That's the headline. The Reverend Sean Harrison was watching Law & Order SUV when his cell phone rang. The deal was ready to go down, he was told. He could find his package on a Dorchester side street in a garbage bag inside a brown trash can. The next morning, Harrison drove to the site wearing his clergy collar. Harrison, 46, spotted the parcel. It seemed no bigger than a loaf of Italian bread. Mm, Mm. Uh, I'm hungry. He placed placed it on the back seat of his van, then loop-de-loop to his Dorchester home, making sure no one followed. Gospel star Donnie McClurkin rode alongside him via the car stereo. At his house, Harrison unburdened the package and gently placed the contents on his couch. He refused to sit near it. Pacing the living room floor, he reached for another measure of gospel remedy. When the cops arrived by prearrangement that Wednesday a week ago, 
Harrison handed over the illicit goods from a Dorchester gangster, a 20-gauge sawed-off shotgun, joining the more than 765 firearms recovered by police this year. Two rounds were still in the cylinder, according to a police report. One kid at a time, one gun at a time, thought Harrison, founder of Youth in Crisis Ministry, as James Cleveland's Hallelujah, the Storm is Passing Over played in the background. How did you like that story? It sucked. Who wrote it? I didn't write down the reporter. I didn't want to. I, I didn't mm. want to make him feel bad. It was well, a guy. Anybody obviously. who anybody who writes that way deserves to have their name associated with it. Was it a column or was it an actual? It article? was like a little article, but it was on one of the front pages of one of the city section type things. Mm. Yeah, it was on January twenty fourth, two thousand and six. The headline was again: clergyman leads a suspect to police. The article started like this: Ronald E. Williams was scared. His confidant said, "The Boston police and the Beverly police were looking for him, so he turned to a man who's becoming the known as the go-to guy for people looking to surrender to the police." Early yesterday, Williams, 44, called the Reverend Sean Harrison, the founder of Youth in Crisis Ministries in Dorchester, who says he'll work with people of any age. By 5.30 p.m., Williams and Harrison had walked into a police station in Lower Roxbury, and Williams was placed under arrest. So that was my quote. The police had been looking for Ronald Williams for about a week. He was wanted for making threats and intimidating a witness after he repeatedly called his wife on her landline and cell phone and threatened to kill her. Ronald was staying at a friend's home in Boston and didn't realize he was wanted. A Roxbury acquaintance told him the police were looking for him. Sean Harrison told the Globe, he said, I want to turn myself in, but I'm scared. I told him, I don't want to know what happened. I'm just here to help you. He wanted a safe passage, and I made that possible. Hmm. Two weeks earlier, the article explained, the Reverend Harrison had brought suspects in a stabbing death to Boston police. And Sean thought maybe the coverage of that event had led Ronald Williams to contact him. About a week later, the Boston Globe had a story, Preaching Peace for Boston Streets, Seeking a Break for Ex-Offenders. The story talked about how former gang members who had served time wanted to work with law enforcement and others who were trying to stop gang violence. The men talked about the lack of resources for ex-cons and how hard it is to get a job once you've been in jail, and how hard it is not to join a gang when you have no way to support yourself. But they wanted to make their communities better and keep kids from joining gangs. Sean Harrison was quoted in the Globe. I'm tired of going to kids' funerals. I know you guys hold the key to turn this whole thing around. You've been there. You've done that. I want you on my team. On March 1st, 2006, the Globe had the following item. Anti-gum billboard to feature new message. City officials in Stop Handgun Violence will unveil a new anti-gun message today on a big billboard along the Massachusetts Turnpike. The billboard will criticize the gun laws of states such as New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine, saying that they and 29 other states allow private owners to sell guns without criminal background checks of buyers, contributing to gun trafficking and crime in Massachusetts. Meanwhile, a local youth ministry is calling on parents and businesses to participate in a new gun buyback program. Members of Youth in Crisis Ministries sent letters this week to dozens of churches and local businesses asking them to donate vouchers to those who turn in guns. Unlike other buyback programs, the program is aimed more towards the parent than to youth, said the Reverend Sean Harrison, the organization's executive director. 
On June 17, 2006, The Globe reported that Mayor Thomas Menino said the police department was going to pay officers overtime and have a huge show of police force on the streets to try to stop increasing violence. The article reported that since the same point the year before, 80% more people had been wounded by gunfire. According to the article, quote, community leaders acted with delight yesterday to the idea of a heightened police presence. I'm sure they were delighted. The Reverend Sean Harrison told the paper, if they come out full force like they did in 2004, I think we'll see a real decline in the violence that's going up. An article a month later, July 21st, read, buyback takes a thousand guns off streets. There was a big photo of a table with a bunch of guns on it and Mayor Menino gesturing at them. Well, they love those. I know. Sean Harrison, according to the article, had turned in approximately a dozen guns that came from people, quote, definitely capable of using them in crimes an article on that's what sean harrison said yes. they were definitely capable of using okay an article on the july 23rd 2006 sunday paper had a picture of a gun made out of legos and the headline 12 the new 21 with the subheadline, it's headline news boston violent crime is spiking more alarming still one thing that's dropping is the age of many of those committing the crimes here's a passage from the article i'm sure you'll love this writing Mm. Over the last seven or so years, says the Reverend Sean Harrison, his outreach to youths has expanded its scope from those in high and middle school to include elementary level children. Harrison says he's currently trying to coax one Dorchester gang member to turn in his guns. He has two of them, Harrison says. The boy is 12. Earlier this month, Harrison says, he was in the boy's bedroom, decorated red out of an allegiance to his crew, the Bloods, and delivered this message. I love you very much. If you go out and shoot somebody and you go away for life, I'm going to miss those times I shared with you. Mm. And a piece of me will die inside because you're not here anymore. Harrison says the boy offered to give up his bullets, but for now he wanted to hang on to his weapons. Harrison believes he'll get the guns out of the 12-year-old's hands eventually. He'll keep trying. 12-year-old, says Harrison, if we don't stop them, they will be the next 21. Mm. The next time Sean Harrison was in the news was a Boston Globe article on February 9th, 2008, about a new program in which police would be going door-to-door in Dorchester and Roxbury, asking people for permission to search their homes, especially children's rooms, for guns. Mm. It was an initiative that was aimed at getting guns out of children's hands. The article said police would be relying on tips, and it made clear that the searches would be voluntary, and police were relying on tips from schools, community organizations, neighbors, and parents. Some area ministers had agreed to accompany police on the visits, not because they supported the program, but because they wanted to keep an eye on the police and make sure they weren't overstepping. But other ministers, like Sean Harrison, had no interest in it. Reverend Harrison told the Globe, I'm not going to go and help them get a gun. Then a kid gets arrested because there's a body on it. There's my credibility going down the tubes. Sean Harrison told the paper his nephew, Roderick Carter, had been fatally shot a month before. He told a reporter, I'm conflicted about this thing here. I know they're trying to do everything they can to get guns off the street. I commend them for that, but I don't think that's the way. For his part, Sean Harrison would ask the gang members he worked with to turn over their guns anonymously. They trusted him not to turn them in. His goal was to get guns off the streets also, but without getting the kids into trouble. On April of 2008, the Globe reported on a University of Minnesota study that looked at 10 cities, including Boston. The study found that alcohol, especially malt liquor, 
was more available in poor black neighborhoods than in white, more affluent neighborhoods. Sean Harrison was quoted in the story, quote, start at the intersection of Dudley Street and Blue Hill Avenue and go all the way to Mattapan. There's more liquor stores than churches. On June 21, 2008, another shooting in Mattapan was reported. Victor Torres was shot in the back as he stood on the sidewalk in front of a friend's house. He was not a gang member, nor involved in any illegal activities. That week had seen another gunshot death and four injuries from different shootings in the same neighborhood. The Reverend Harrison told the Boston Globe, There are a lot of old beefs and new beefs popping up. You've got new beefs because you have people coming out who want to shoot someone to make a name for themselves. It's crazy. This is just the beginning. He was referring to the fact that summer was just beginning and there would be more violence in the streets. On May 23, 2009, the headline read, From the pulpit, they answer another calling. The story was about Reverend Harrison and Pastor Azidi Jr., who are both running for city council. Harrison in Mattapan and Azidi in Roxbury. The Reverend Harrison was described as the associate minister from the Charles Street African Methodist Episcopal Church in Roxbury. Sean told the Globe, I think it's excellent that you have two ministers running. Now we can get things done. I don't think people care about whether you are a minister or a priest or whatever. They are looking for someone with integrity, honesty, and someone who is concerned about this great city. But Sean's bin for city council was unsuccessful. On October 26, 2010, there was an article about a video that had been taken days earlier of a 16-year-old being held down by a police officer while another officer hit him. The incident happened on the Roxbury Community College campus. First-year student Yusida Blygen recorded it on her cell phone. The headline read, DA launches probe into violent arrest of teen. While many decried what they saw as police brutality, Reverend Sean Harrison in an email wrote, I don't think at this point we as leaders of the community can say it's police brutality hmm or unnecessary excessive force until we actually know if there was another campus video that shows the event from the beginning. The Reverend Sean Harrison referred to himself as a leader of the community, and for more than a decade of community service, he had proven himself to be one. Then sometime around 2012, he just wasn't around anymore. One minister who used to work with the Reverend Harrison as an anti-violence activist later told the Boston Globe, I often wondered, where did Sean go? Sean Harrison was around. He had a job with the title Community Field Coordinator from about 2007 to 2011 at Odyssey High School in South Boston, according to his LinkedIn profile, which is there and has a number of typos, which I find very annoying. Mm. And he also has a Facebook page still. After that, he had the same job at Green Academy in South Boston, according to the Boston Globe, citing information from the Boston public school system. In January of 2015, Sean Harrison Harrison beat out 50 other applicants for the job of Dean of Students at Boston English High School in Jamaica Plain. His job was to coordinate services for students and their families. Sean's job at Boston English didn't last long. On Friday, March 6, 2015, the Boston Globe's front page headline read, Pastor is charged with shooting. Prosecutors say anti-gang activists led a double life. Mm-hmm. Do you know this one yet? Yeah, no? yeah. His name had rung a bell, and I was trying to remember. And then when you said the part about Boston English, I, I started ah, remembering. I figured yeah. you would. According to police, the previous Tuesday, March 3rd, Sean Harris had shot one of his students. Not by accident, not by trying to break up a gunfight or something like that, but execution style. Hitting the 17 year old in the back of the neck and leaving him for dead in the street. Why would a supposed man of God, a minister, a youth worker, an anti-violence and anti-gang activist, an anti-gun activist shoot someone? 
Mm. Well, let's find out. People who knew Sean Harrison were stunned by the discovery of his other side. Well, some people who knew him, anyway. His sister, Susan, told the Boston Globe after his arrest, My brother is a good man, and I don't know how this happened. It was a setup. The Reverend Opal Adams, a pastor at Charles Street AME Church, where Sean had formerly been a minister, told the Globe, It doesn't sound like our Sean. It's not the character of the man we knew. Pastor George Hampton, who worked with Sean at Refuge Deliverance Outreach Church, said, We are out of our minds. Everyone is saying, you know, that this is what he preached against and fought against. How in the world could he be one of the perpetrators? Nancy Robinson's The Citizens for Safety, who had worked with Sean in earlier years, said, This is totally unexpected. I've never seen him lose his temper. Everything we do and we work on is to prevent this kind of incident. She told the Boston Globe the circumstances of Sean's arrest were pretty ironic. Hmm. A lot of people who previously had worked with Sean distanced themselves pretty quickly. The school said Sean had been fired Thursday morning, that they had already decided to fire him before his arrest. More on that later. Sean had been overseeing director of a group called Operation Homefront, which is a group of ministers and clergy against violence. As soon as he was arrested, all evidence of his existence was removed from their Facebook page. A high-ranking anonymous police official said of Sean, he wasn't a heavy hitter in our eyes in terms of working for the rehabilitation of young people. We wouldn't summarily dismiss him, but he wasn't someone you would give a lot of credence to in terms of what he was saying. It was all very nebulous. Which... Kind of is disingenuous because he was quoted quite a bit in the pay. I mean, it seemed like right. he worked with the cops a lot. Right. But Just because reporters quote someone, and I'm not true. defending the cops, but reporters tend to latch on to when they're doing a story they on know. a certain topic, if they know somebody's good for some quotes, yeah, that's, that's the go-to person. What I would say, though, is it seems like he was one of the few people doing what he was doing. If he was not a player, all those years he was being quoted in the Globe, some cop would have told the police reporters who were calling him, hey, you know, that guy, I don't yeah. know why you guys are always calling him. And apparently no one did, so. Yeah. yeah. What happened to lead up to Sean Harrison trying to kill a kid? Well, according to court records and media reports, the young victim was selling marijuana for the reverend, for the rev, as Sean was known. Mm-hmm. Media reports said the two got into disputes for, quote, lackluster sales. I kept seeing that quote and everything. And that's why Sean shot him. Now, we'll discuss this later, but that sounds like a stupid motive, and I don't think that was the only motive, as we will discuss later. After Sean was arrested, police carried out a search warrant on his apartment on Pompeii Street in Roxbury. At the time, neighbors told the Boston Globe that they had complained to police about drug activity previously. One neighbor said, the door was never closed. (laughs) And if you ever live near someone who's a drug dealer, which I have, there are constant people visiting back and yeah. forth back and forth so that's what the guy meant by that three men were arrested leaving sean's apartment shortly after sean's arrest oscar pena 19 wilson Peguero 23 and dante lara 24 were removing evidence from the home after those three were out of the way police searched sean's place and guns ammunition cocaine and pot were found He also had what is described in a bunch of news stories as a Latin King's mural on his wall, or they'll say a mural of the Latin Kings. Uh, The Latin Kings are a street gang, but I saw a picture of it. 
it's a spray painted image. They describe it as being in the apartment, but it looks like it's on like a exterior wall because it looks like it's on like, you know, horizontal clapboards or something, but whatever. It's an outline of a lion head wearing a five pointed crown, which I guess is the emblem of the Lion Kings. It's not really a mural. Right. So it's I mean, actually like some graffiti or street yeah, art. It's a graffiti thing, right. but it isn't even like a nice and, graffiti filled in and stuff. It's just like an outline, like with a black can of spray paint. And so my journalism translation on this whole thing is some cop said that to some reporter mm-hmm. at some point and then it just got picked up and carried through every exactly. story without just like anyone the lackluster sales right well anytime someone uses a word lackluster journalists love that and they like kind of the cutesiness of a marijuana operation with lackluster sales. So that's why they would use that quote a lot. That's stupid. In the apartment were two handguns, a rifle, a shotgun, several calibers of ammunition, enough cocaine to get a trafficking charge, and a lot of marijuana. Mm. Sean was given bail of $250,000 cash. The three guys arrested at Sean's apartment had semi-automatic handguns on them, pot and cocaine too, so they were arrested. The Tuesday of the shooting, the day of the shooting, Tuesday, Sean texted the victim, Luis Rodriguez, and told him to meet him at a gas station. They were going somewhere to meet girls and and smoke some pot. Mm. Keep in mind that Sean Harrison was 55 years old at the time, and his victim was a 17-year-old student of his. A surveillance video showed two people walking down Magazine Street in Roxbury about 7.15 p.m. Because there were snowbanks on either side, and I remember this was 2015, there were several really big snowstorms in March, and there was one on April 1st. This was the mm-hmm. beginning of March. There were two, I saw stills from the video, there were two big snowbanks, so they had to walk single file. The person in the rear was on a cell phone. The video shows the person in the rear raise his hand and then run away. Luis Rodriguez was shot in the back of the neck behind his ear. He survived, stumbling into traffic and flagging a car down when police asked him who shot him he finally told them the rev according to boston city officials sean was about to be fired the day of the shooting for shoving a female student the incident in which sean shoved the girl had led to a disciplinary hearing that was scheduled for thursday and was pretty certain he would be fired at that meeting but then he got arrested wednesday for the shooting which made the shoving a moot point although Mm. he was still fired the shoving incident wasn't the first time sean had been in trouble in a school job he had been reprimanded twice in 2012 when he worked at green academy for shoving a girl and throwing a roll of tape at her head Mm. he also was disciplined for inappropriate comments towards students one former student told the globe that sean was quote always flirting and asking students for their number sean wasn't fired for those incidents and back then there was no hint to most people that he was involved in anything illegal but in 2014 complaints to the police crime stoppers hotline led police to set up a stakeout in sean's apartment Police Commissioner William Evans later told the Boston Globe, Our officers sat outside that location for weeks and weeks. There was nothing consistent with drug dealing going on. There was nothing to indicate this fellow needed to be watched any closer. Sean ended up being charged with armed assault and intent to murder, aggravated assault and battery, and unlawful possession of a firearm, unlawful possession of ammunition, possession of a firearm and commission of a felony, trafficking in cocaine, and possession with intent to distribute marijuana. Parents of the students at English High School were not pleased. One parent told the Boston Globe, We parents need some assurances. We need a guarantee that no other staff was complicit. I can't believe there weren't some rumors going around about inappropriate relationships. Mayor Marty Walsh issued a statement that Sean Harrison lived a double life. 
<laughs> and he claimed nobody knew anything about it until he shot hmm. Luis Rodriguez. The intern superintendent, John McDonough, told parents at a public meeting there were no red flags <laughs> in Sean Harrison's behavior before his arrest. Quote, we are all questioning. Why didn't we see anything before? But there were no indications. We want to find out if there were things we should have known, things that did not come to us through our usual protocols that should have come to us. He told the audience about a new hotline being set up. Quote, there should never be a student or parent who feels fearful about expressing concerns. However, there were red flags. In the fall of 2014, Sean worked at Orchard Gardens, a kindergarten through eighth grade school. Sean worked as an assistant in the program for autistic children. An anonymous source from the school told the Boston Globe that Sean had been spoken to several times for being harsh with students. He missed a lot of work and made passes at co-workers. He was not allowed to be alone with children or take them to the bathroom. Although, to be fair, this could be protocol for any adult working there, especially a male. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know if it was just him. Or... He didn't get fired from Orchard Gardens because he applied for the job at English High School and got it. According to different reports, English High is a large school that had long had issues don't his they check references they probably didn't give him a bad reference they're probably glad to get rid of him yeah his job description said he was supposed to observe collect and analyze data about students academic emotional behavioral and psychological growth sean harrison's job was a new position funded by grants the position was meant to help kids who needed extra support and attention they were perfect victims for a person in sean's position who wanted to take advantage of his role when sean went to court the second time for the guns and drug charges, another bail was imposed for $150,000 cash. And for people that aren't really familiar with it, it's kind of unusual. That's a high bail. Sometimes it's cash or it's like the cash would be like 10% of that. So now he was in jail on $400,000 bail so he wasn't going to get out anytime soon in court to support Sean his second time around were his eight sons according to the Boston Globe he had eight but I don't know if he really had eight sons because he also had at least one daughter and someone else said he raised eight children so Sean's sister Susan was also in court the Reverend Bernard Coulter of New Faith Missionary Baptist Church in Dorchester was there to support Sean the Reverend Coulter said we had prayer last night prayed for him at my church not only him, we prayed for the kid. Wilson Peguero Jr., one of the young men charged with trying to remove evidence from Sean's apartment, told the Boston Globe, We are all innocent. God has our backs just as tight as we have his. He also said he knew Sean because Sean was giving him anger management counseling at his, mm. Sean's, apartment. Quote, got a certificate for it as well. That's, mm -hmm. what he, that's what Wilson wrote in a text message to a Boston Globe reporter. Sean had years-long relationships with all three young men. The previous fall, Sean had bailed Wilson out of jail. When Sean was a case manager at Bird Street Community Center in 2009, he signed off on court-ordered community services for Wilson's twin brother, Alexis. The other two men arrested at Sean's apartment, Dante Lara and Oscar Pena, had also known Sean a long time. Oscar was Wilson's half-brother, and Dante grew up with both of the young men. All three men, according to Boston police, belonged to the Latin Kings street gang. They all had previous records, some for violent crimes. They had tattoos indicating their affiliation with the gang, and Sean Harrison had the same tattoo, which is a red 100, which looks exactly like the 100 emoji that people use when they're saying 100%, so I don't really see how it's a gang sign, but what do mm -hmm. I know? You know that 100 I'm talking yes. about? That's yeah. what it looks like. It's wow. like, so is everyone who uses that? Like, well, I, I'm just saying, they should they should pick it. If they're going to pick something I think, for a gang symbol. Whoa, should... whoa, whoa, whoa. I think the gang symbol came before the emoji. Mm, I don't know. You have to see it. They have the no, little I lion know, head. No, I know what you're talking about. 
yes. for the hundred. But what year was this? Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, two thousand fifteen. Yeah, I don't think that hundred was around uh, then. I don't know. Other former gang members and young offenders confirmed that Sean conducted anger management sessions in his apartment. The Reverend Mark Scott, another minister active in the community, told the Globe, Anybody who does this work does it from an institutional base. You never do it out of your apartment by yourself. Police officers and partners for a reason. When Jesus sends out disciples, he sends them two by two. The gang understands the principle of community. From all indications, Sean did not. In other words, Sean was risking getting sucked into the very community he was trying to reform because he could easily lose perspective without someone else there to support him. Yes. Reverend Scott also said, Sean Harrison wasn't built for the street. If you do it without support, the street will flip you. Oh, that sounds so like... Yeah. Mm. Sounds Sean, like something from a TV show. I know. Sean tried to do outreach on his own and called it clergy home visits. Also, one of Sean's sons was a youth outreach worker, and he lost his job after accidentally, allegedly, shooting a woman in the head. I don't know. I didn't read up on that hmm. to see the background. Sean took over his son's visits in the Villa Victoria development. While he was supposed to be helping children, he spent most of his time hanging out with 20-year-old Victor Nunez, drinking and eating rice and beans and chicken. When Victor's girlfriend had a baby boy, Sean threw a baby shower at his Pompeii Street apartment. He encouraged Victor to get his GED. But a friend of Victor's, Hector Gomez, told the Globe he, quote, just knew something was weird about Mr. Harrison. You worked at a church and you smoke weed? That was the first thing that threw me off about him. Victor Nunez died July 19, 2014, when he was shot in the South End. His murder wasn't solved, and it devastated Sean Harrison. To some people, when Sean asked for donations for the funeral, he called Victor his son. On Facebook, he called Victor his mentor, even though Victor was over 30 years younger than Sean. After Victor's death, Sean gave money and support to the baby's mother, and she told the Boston Globe she considered Sean to be the baby's godfather and, quote, he's always been the same nice person I know him to be. Meanwhile, the Boston Public School Department was conducting an inquiry into Sean Harrison's tenure in their employ. The subsequent report recommended when illegal activity is suspected, law enforcement should be told. You think? Hmm. Gee, Superintendent John McDonough told the Boston Globe, while our internal investigation appears to have found that proper protocols were followed, I remain unconvinced our standards are high enough to meet the basic expectations of the students and families we serve. The story about the inquiry gave more details on Sean's prior issues. At Boston English, he used an expletive on a young woman he pushed and threatened to smack her in quotes. At Green Academy, while he was accused of pushing a female student, that accusation wasn't substantiated. He was counseled and given a written warning. A month after that, he made inappropriate comments, which weren't described, and talked about recreational drug use with students. The inappropriate comments were substantiated, but not the drug use talk. The next year, he was laid off. Hmm. At Boston English, Sean worked with a group of seven students, the most at-risk kids. He was a liaison with other service agencies like the foster care system. It is unclear at the time of his arrest if Sean had ever really been ordained as a minister or if he had really had the Bachelor of Science in Human Services from Springfield College that he claimed to have. He'd been calling himself a minister since 1979 when he was 20, and people just took him at his word. Sean was married in 1979 to Lillian Bullock at Mount Calvary Baptist Church. He worked as a youth minister there. Prior to that, he was a youth minister, 
at a Pentecostal church on Massachusetts Ave in the South End. His father-in-law, the Reverend George Bullock Sr., was also a minister. Lillian, his wife, Sean's wife, was also a minister at Mount Calvary. Sean left Mount Calvary in the 1980s, but in 2007, he publicly accused a former pastor of the church of sexually abusing his son in 2004 Mm. when the son was 14. Sean wanted the minister prosecuted. Church members were against legal action. Sean said the former minister confessed, but nothing ever came of the accusation and no charges were ever filed. In 2009, Sean's marriage broke up and he moved into his apartment. Before the end of his marriage, he and his wife and kids lived in a first floor Dorchester apartment and neighbors said they were a pleasant church-going family. I think his wife was still a minister at that church at Mount Calvary mm-hmm. um, when all this happened. Right. And she might still be, according to the newspaper, she still was. When Sean was arraigned in May of 2015, this was the first time a possible motive for the shooting was offered by the prosecutor, lagging pot sales. As I said before, it seems like a lame motive, but we'll talk about it later. The gun that was used to shoot Luis Rodriguez was never found, nor is Luis's cell phone. But Sean's phone showed texts he'd sent the teenager with pictures of pot leaves and guns. <laughs> Sean told 7 News Boston in an interview in 2016, I never lived a double life. I never, never sold drugs. I never, never sold drugs. I never sold guns. I never turned kids into gang members. Me, I would not even know how to do that. I'm not a gang member. I'm the Rev. For me to be accused of something like that, all of the sudden it's 55, it's like a nightmare. And you're trying to wake up from this nightmare. Sean Harrison finally went to trial three years later in May of 2018. In court papers, it was revealed that Sean Harrison first recruited his young victim in the school cafeteria. The young man, Luis, visited Sean's apartment, smoked pot with him, and Sean let him handle a handgun. Sean reportedly bragged about his membership in the Latin Kings to students and showed them pictures of guns on his phone. He talked about doing drugs and smoking pot to the kids. The day of the shooting, Sean directed another boy to attack Luis at school, supposedly because Luis wasn't selling enough pot. Another story said there was pot missing or money missing. The fight was caught on video that was taken in the boys' bathroom, so I guess they have video cameras in their bathroom. According to court records, uh, Luis said he owed Sean $10. After the attack on Luis was when the female student confronted Sean. Sean reportedly said to her, I'll slap the shit out of you and shoved her. Then later that evening, Sean shot Luis as they walked down Magazine Street. The bullet entered Luis's neck right below his right ear, just missing the carotid artery, shattering his jawbone and causing nerve damage. On the second day of Sean Harrison's trial, Luis Rodriguez testified. Luis told the court how he was raised by his grandmother in Roxbury after his mother went to jail when he was four. He said of Sean Harrison, he was my counselor. I went to him for everything. When Luis first met Sean in the school cafeteria, Luis told Sean he was high on pot. Sean laughed and said he had smoked pot the night before. Quote, he said, yeah, man, I was high last night. And Luis wasn't sure what to make of that. Later, Sean approached Luis and asked him if he wanted to make some money. Luis told the court, I was confused because as a student, a teacher coming up to me asking me if I want to make money is kind of awkward to me. Sean's plan was to give pot to Luis to sell, and Luis would give him the proceeds. Luis agreed to the arrangement. At least once in Sean's office at the school, Sean gave him pot, and the other time was at Sean's apartment when Sean let Luis handle the gun. Luis testified, as a young teen, I was overwhelmed. I remember pointing it everywhere. 
Luis said once Sean said something to him about Pop missing from his office. Luis wasn't sure if he was being accused of stealing or not. The day of the shooting, Luis told the court that he thought he and Sean were on good terms and nothing seemed to miss. Even after his friend, Luidi Arias, attacked him in the bathroom and said, quote, you messed it up for us. Luis didn't think it had anything to do with Sean. Luidi Arias later told the police that the fight was about something else, that Luis had insulted his mother. That evening, Luis and Sean Harrison met at a Sunoco station in Roxbury. Sean had promised to bring Pot and Molly, the drug, and the two were going to meet girls. Then as they walked down Magazine Street, Sean shot Luis from behind. Luis told the court of the shooting, All I felt was a loud bang and I hit the floor. And as soon as I hit the floor, I'm like dazed. There was nobody there, nobody there. Harrison was nowhere to be found. Luis flagged down a car and begged them to take him to the hospital. He told the court when he got to the hospital, he kept asking people if he was going to die. I even asked the janitor if I was going to die. I thought that was cute. When Prosecutor David Bradley asked who shot him, Luis told the court, There's no doubt in my mind Mr. Sean Harrison did. On cross-examination, defense attorney Bruce Carroll asked Luis why he initially told police he didn't know who shot him, and then he said that it was somebody that was buying pot from him. And Luis answered, It took me a while to get all my thoughts back together after being shot in the head, sir. I was in such denial. I knew who did it. Of course I knew who did it. After a two-week trial and a day of deliberation, the jury found Sean Harris guilty on all ten counts against him. The day after his conviction, June 1st, 2018, Sean was sentenced to up to 26 years in prison. During the sentencing, the Boston Globe reported Sean looked straight ahead, but his daughter, LaShonda, got up and stormed out of the courtroom, according to the report. Sean's sister, Kathleen, said, they messed up my brother's reputation. They all lie. At the sentencing, Judge Christopher Muse said, quote, you profess to be a man of religion. You promote yourself as one who can mentor troubled youth, and yet you violated their safety by bringing drugs and violence to them. Near the Suffolk County Courthouse is the Garden of Peace, a monument to homicide victims in which victims' names are carved on stones. Judge Muse said, The ambushing and shooting of Luis was a premeditated plan of first-degree murder by the defendant. He did everything to engrave Luis's name on one of those stones except get a death certificate. Luis was placed in the Witness Protection Program. He lived outside of Boston, and at the time of the trial, he was studying to get his GED and working in a restaurant. He had a rescue cat named Minnie Mouse and wanted to become Mm -hmm. a veterinary nurse. In December 2019, Sean Harrison was once again in the headlines. One of the headlines in the Boston Globe read, Ex-school dean charged in gang bust, former English official part of Latin Kings. The U.S. Attorney's Office had indicted 62 Massachusetts members of the Latin Kings on racketeering charges, including Sean Harrison. Apparently, Sean had spent a lot of time in prison talking to his fellow Latin Kings and trying to find out the informant who he thought pointed the cops toward him in the shooting of Luis Rodriguez. Now, I just want to point out here that the cops really didn't need an informant. No. Uh, (laughs) The FBI had tapes of phone calls that made clear that Sean was working with his Latin King buddies to see who could have told the cops about him. The name of the operation, the FBI operation, was Operation Thrown Down. And it was Operation, and Thrown is like throne, like a king's throne, T-H-R-O. Huh. I was like, oh my God. Well, there's, they lo- that's what their favorite thing is. I know, making names. names. Apparently, Sean had seen somewhere in his file that there was a confidential informant involved in his case. He wanted to get the file as discovery for his appeal, and he told one of the members on the phone that he would send a letter with the name of the person so they could take care of that but, person. But didn't Luis say Sean shot him? Yes. Yes, he's stupid. 
Okay. Sean said on the tape, I was going through my shit. There's a CI on my case. I wrote to my appeals attorney and requested the affidavit of what the CI said that led to my investigation and arrest in this alleged crime. I'm going to write. I'm not going to on the phone, but I'm going to write. I'll let you know his name, but I don't want to say anything on the phone. Okay, but (laughs) doesn't he think they read his mail? (laughs) Unfortunately, he got a RICO charge along with a bunch of other gang members from Massachusetts, so he was never able to take care of his supposed informant. In later articles, it's reported that Sean's motive was that he was afraid Luis was going to turn him in as a member of the gang, which makes a bit more sense, but I think he just didn't want to... We'll talk about it in a minute, but... In February of 2020, Sean Harrison, the Rev, pled not guilty to racketeering conspiracy, and I couldn't find out anything more, but I'm assuming, just like everything else this year, it's been a slow crawl, and since he's already locked up, it's not really urgent. Well, they shut down the courts for so long yeah. that there's a huge backlog. And he's in jail for t- over 20 right, years. Right, so, so it's not a high like priority position. case. So yeah. I think that the reason he shot that kid was because he realized shit was falling apart. Yes. I don't think anyone really knows except him and his gang buddies, is how long was he in the gang? It seems like the, some of the articles seem to think that it was around 2012, but I wonder if he's all had always, I mean, it was probably a gradual thing mm-hmm. that he got sucked in, or was he always, like, intrigued by it? And Yeah, what I think is, and I remember thinking this when I was reading about it in the Globe and stuff, too, is that he became enamored of it. And I also think... That he liked kind of the spotlight or yeah. or feeling important, not necessarily, you know, he liked getting his name in the paper. Yeah. And, you know, what I was saying earlier about reporters knowing who to call. Yeah. Lots of times those people like getting their names in the paper. They always have something to say. It sounds like he liked to, he was kind of aggrandizing, you know, showing the kids the photos on his phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, who does that? Well, that, that's what I was going to say. Like, he's such an idiot. There's no informant. They could just ask the kids at school, what's, you know, Mr. Harrison? And they're probably like, oh, he was always talking about being in the Latin Kings. Right. I mean, there doesn't need to be an informant. Right. You know? And all that bullshit about no red flags. It's like, people Ugh, just don't want to see. People don't want to see the red flags. And also, intrigues me a little that he was, even with his supposed Bachelor of Science, that he was able to get those jobs in the school system. Well, they they do mention in some of the articles that his jobs didn't require a license, uh, educational right. licenses, and didn't. But I think a lot of it was his. He was able to hustle, and yeah. he did make a name for himself. Yeah. And people can distance themselves from him and say that oh, he wasn't that important. But obviously, he had a name around, and he right. also he did deal with people that other people didn't want to deal with. But the thing that I think is is part of the reason he didn't get more in trouble is because the kids he dealt with, nobody probably wanted to work with although he did beat out 50 applicants for that job at boston english i'm sure some Mm. of the applicants were pissed when they saw you know less than a month later he's friggin well no it was two months later he's fired you know Mm. you know what's funny the reason i decided to do this one is when he got convicted i saw 
an article in the paper and sometimes I'll take a picture when I'm reading the paper of something that I think is interesting and I might want. And I totally forgot about it, but I was going through my pictures for some other reason and I saw it oh. and I decided to read more about it. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask you what made you do that. It's good. It I'm was... not generally interested in the gang part of it, but the, yeah. um, the, just the fact that he would turn on that poor kid and the kid looks like such a, he and... still looks like a little young kid. He doesn't look like, you know, and to me, it's not a gang story. No, it's it's an a... A, a g- asshole guy story. He's a narcissist, and yeah. he's a, which is I know is overused. He didn't shoot the kid for any reason other than I think things were falling apart on him, and I don't know how he thought it would help. People do irrational things, and it sounds like a lot of what he did prior to that was irrational, and he was enabled in his ability or whatever to do irrational things. And I think sometimes people, especially if they have, you know, a warped view of reality and stuff, they get so caught up in their version of reality that something like that seems a normal thing to do. And maybe he wanted to be a tough guy. Maybe part of the reason he did it was because... Well, and now that he's in prison, he'll be even more because, you know, he's already got his gang membership. If he wasn't a member of the gang before that, I'm sure he is now. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's in prison. That seems to be that's what the culture is there. So anyways, so do we have some recommendations? (laughs) Before we talk about them, can I tell you, I finished watching that Hotel Cecil show mm-hmm. i probably will take back the point i took off for missing pieces because they did the last episode answered a lot of my questions which i was happy for but i would say they could have condensed it into two episodes and got rid of the internet people mm. those internet people were annoying and served no purpose as far right. as i can see um, i mean the internet portion of it is part of the whole thing because it became really online thing but it was just stupid i meant to mention this last episode and didn't when you said you know if you listen to podcasts you know this case and i realized i must listen to different podcasts because the way i first learned about this case was on the new unsolved mysteries and so when you were saying that you finally got to see things i'm thinking Well, I already saw them, and I remember when I was watching it on Unsolved Mysteries, I texted you, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's been on, like, every podcast, and I'm like, oh, I didn't see it. And the first time I actually heard about it was before I ever listened to podcasts. A friend of mine, an online friend, posted the video, and he said something like, what do you think of this video? He said to me just looking at her behavior she looks like she's on you know she's on drugs because there was no background it was when the police had posted that video trying to get help trying to get people to i don't know Mm. if anyone could help them with it the thing and i'm gonna give spoilers here but i don't care because i bitched about it um her behavior that they mentioned in the first episode they did bring it up at the end what her roommates were complaining about what she was doing was first of all she was leaving post-it notes all over the place saying get out and stuff like that she would lock the door and not let them in when they came back to the room unless they gave her a password and stuff like that so she was doing really annoying shit when they did the toxicology it took a while to get it back which all the internet people were very upset about Mm. The only drugs she had in her system were her prescription drugs, but the amounts were very low. And when they looked at her prescription bottles and the dates on them, it was obvious she hadn't been taking them. 
Right. And the other thing is the maintenance man said the hatch was off when he went up to check on the water. It hmm. was open. So that whole thing about the hatch being closed was wrong. The way they got that was from one of the police when he was talking to um, a police spokesman said, when our officers got there, the hatch was closed. He closed it after he saw her in there. You know, he knew she was dead. So it wasn't like she was in there, you know, somebody closed it on her and killed her. She went in there and it was open all that time. Right. Until the maintenance guy went up there. So Which which still doesn't mean that she went in of her own volition. It, Except and- that her sister said when she was not taking her meds, she'd be very paranoid, and she would always try to hide places. She'd hide under the bed. She'd hide in the closet. She could have been trying to hide in the water tank. It's true. It makes a lot of sense, is but all I'm saying. I'll say two things. One, I did start to try to watch it. I think I lasted about two minutes. I think it starts with an image of what's possibly an internet sleuth. And it just made me so irritated that I'm like, I'm... I also want to say that I thought the Unsolved Mysteries, you know, the new... I must not have seen that one yet. Maybe not. I thought I watched them all. It was the first season. I think it was Unsolved Mysteries. The the first season of the new version of Unsolved Mysteries. Was it? I don't remember that one. I'll have to look. I don't remember watching it. Well, let me finish what I was going to say anyway. Even if it wasn't Unsolved Mysteries, I thought it was. But but in the past year, I've watched something about it that Mm -hmm. didn't have internet sleuths that seemed to have given a better narrative on it. I can't remember what they said about the hatch, but I do now vaguely remember the thing about the post-it notes and stuff. So I would recommend if people are interested in the case and don't want to sit through a four-episode thing that has a lot of internet sleuths, they may want to check Unsolved Mysteries, the new one, not the old one, or just try to, if I got that Unsolved Mysteries wrong, try to find it somewhere else. The other thing about this one is there was this singer that sings like death metal or something that the internet sleuths accused of killing her just because he had stayed at the... um, And that's why I love internet sleuths. They they have these cockeyed theories and then they they go all nuts about them all over the internet and ruin people's lives. Although in that Don't Fuck With Cats, they actually helped to find that guy. They did, but they also did fuck a lot of things up. They did. We can talk about that. And screwed up people's lives. Okay, so... Anyways, I think I'm we sorry. did talk about Don't Fuck With Problem. Cats. Okay, now... You want me to do my rating? Negative Nellies. Yes. Mine is on the Netflix documentary, Made You Look. Ooh. And I knew nothing about this. And I actually watched it twice. Because the first time I watched it, I wasn't planning on rating. So, And it's about an art forgery scandal in New York where one gallery, the Nodler, which is also the last name of the woman who produces my audiobooks, I'm sure she's no relation. Over the course of 14 years, sold for $80 million fake art. It focuses on the fallout from that, how it happened Mm. and the fallout from that. And I'll talk more about it as we go through. So bad reenactments. I am not taking anything away. When they kind of tell the story, the theory of how these paintings first got in the hands of the broker woman who then brought them to the gallery... They have the cute animation, not as good as the Lady in the Dale. <laughs> so that's good. So no bad reenactments at all. Narrative cliches. I'm taking away a point. It It isn't your standard narrative cliches, oh. but I feel like they fit into this. First of all, every time 
you say Jackson Pollock. You don't have to show a picture of that asshole smoking a cigarette and doing his painting <laughs> thing. Every time somebody fucking mentions Jackson Pollock, they have to show him doing his thing. And there's something about Jackson Pollock that annoys me. Well, he was a drunk asshole, so... That that probably is it. You know, I like some of his art. I'm not a big, as you know, Becky, big art expert or anything. But you don't have to fucking show the guy. And also, I got tired of hearing, and I know this is people in it saying it, but it's the, the people who make the documentary's choice of you know, what to use and stuff, that people are are motivated by greed if they get taken in by mm-hmm. a scam or something. And I'll talk more about that a little bit. I think it's more, there are people who are motivated by greed, but I think it goes deeper than that. Other narrative cliches, they do a thing, and I noticed that I also watched the documentary. Coincidentally, the three-episode one, that just came out of the Mormons and murder uh, yeah. thing about Mark Hoffman that we... Just like our episode, whatever, right. 82. You I did the recent was... episode on, right. And it's the same thing I'm noticing in more and more documentaries now, where when they're interviewing somebody, it'll show the person sitting there either uncomfortably or gazing off, not talking, but they'll have the person's voice going. I don't know any better mm-hmm. way to describe it than that, but yeah. you'll know when you watch it, you'll know what I'm talking about. And it's an affectation... That can be effective, but they used it way too many times and it started annoying the shit out of me. So I'm going to put that under narrative cliches <laughs> and um, take take a point off because of all that stuff. Racial gender obtuseness. I'm not going to take anything off, but I am going to say I did notice some very strict gender perceptions. Just I felt like many of the women were more insightful. Like, they had two, and I'll get to this in storytelling more, two fucking New York Times reporters. Talk about having too many talking heads. One was a younger guy who, tuck in your fucking shirt, you work for the New York Times, (laughs) who was very snarky and kind of a know-it-all. And then a woman, Patricia Cohen, who was much more insightful and thoughtful. They must have both have covered this at some point. I felt like many of the women were much more insightful and less black and white about what happened. But I'm not taking away any points for, for obtuseness. Lack of good visuals, no points taken away. There were tons of visuals. This was something that was covered in New York, so there were photos videos. Since it's about abstract expressionist art, there were lots of pictures of art. (laughs) You know, and I'm not, like I said, a big art expert, but I found that compelling. They would show what they were talking about. So there were lots of visuals. Missing pieces. There were some, I'm gonna take away a point, even though there were some minor things like the snarky New York reporter, New York Times reporter, it focused on this one woman, Ann Friedman, who was the woman at the Nodler. I can't remember, even though I watched it twice, what her title was, but she was the woman in charge of acquiring art and selling art. She must have been in charge of the gallery. The story centers on her because she was the one who bought the art from this broker over 14 years and then sold it to people. And I give her a lot of credit because she sat down and was interviewed for this documentary and she's pretty much the one who has borne the brunt of the wrath Mm. 
of people over the years. And the snarky New York Times reporter is like, you know, don't tell me she didn't know. She had a Jackson Pollock, a fake Jackson Pollock in her house with his name spelled wrong for all these years. And they kept showing it. And the way the signature is, I had to kind of rewind and look and look and look before I could tell how it was spelled wrong. I'm not sure that that is proof <laughs> that I know. she knew because he had a scrawly signature where you couldn't really tell it was spelled wrong. And so I'm like, gee, didn't somebody ask her about that? I mean, I know there were things... Now, this is going to sound kind of a smushy reason to take a point off. I just felt like there were things I wish I had known more about. Mm -hmm. Um, Towards the very end, the gallery was owned. It had been founded 165 years ago by the... I don't know if it was the Hammer family that found it, but, you know, Armin Tammer, the guy, the billionaire guy, was behind mm-hmm. it. And his grandson, Michael Hammer... Army Hammer's grandfather. Right. But anyway, his grandson, Michael Hammer, was the guy who... I don't know if you call it an owner or whatever the gallery. And it turns out, you find out at the very end, that he's just siphoning money off to spend on all his idiotic rich guy shit. Mm. And his wife his wife's collagen lip injections apparently they didn't say that but there were a lot of women with puffy lips in this and i felt like i would have liked to know more about that aspect and how that worked because basically they sold fake art to the tune of more than 80 million dollars over 14 years and it basically kept the gallery alive because he was just spending money like a you know drunk sailor so i would like to know more about that so i'm taking off a point Inaccuracies, anachronisms, no. Storytelling, I would like to take away a whole point, but some of the storytelling was so good that I can't. So I take away half a point. My biggest issue was too many talking heads. And I think I texted you the first time I watched it when I started watching it. It was this frenetic where you have almost a dozen people telling the story of how this happened. Lawyers, three journalists, because there's a Vanity Fair guy, people who were involved in it, but they're all, like, telling the same story. So Mm. one of them says a sentence, then another one does, then another one does. And I understand the value of different perspectives, but they're all telling the uh, almost the exact same story in such a linear way that you feel like they're all telling it the exact same way. I'm sure there's some point to doing it that way. I'm not sure what it is, because I feel like mm-hmm. when that many people know a story by rote and you're showing them all telling it, it doesn't say to me, oh, this is so interesting. What it says to me is... That all these people just know this story. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm having trouble describing it a little. So that so that was one point. And the talking heads, like, you don't need two New York Times reporters. I felt like a lot of the talking heads were redundant. And mm-hmm. that they uh, the points they made, other people were making too. I felt the ones who actually were involved in this, people who had either been ripped off or were a part of it in another way, were valuable to have there. Like, there were two art forensics guys. You only need one art forensics guy. One good talking head that I was really happy to see was Maria Kornikova, who has written many books, and I have a few, about con artists and why people fall for scams and stuff. And I felt that was a good... Mm -hmm way to give context to what was going on. The good parts of the storytelling were the way they had it set up, like they had, you know, the con, and then they had the forger, like they had these different scenes almost. Mm-hmm. And they did tell both sides of the story. 
they did do it well enough that it's whether you know about art or not it's good to watch they did a great job of explaining these esoteric things that people like me don't know about like what uh now i can't even remember what it was it is but it's basically a publication of all an artist's works Mm -hmm. it's this french word for it why that's important and what it means and also the provenance of uh painting basically is its history, where it came from, and who owned it. And so they did a really good job of explaining that without being boring or being confusing. But I do have to take away half a point because of the talking head shit, which I just can't take, as you know. Yes. Um, Freshness, very fresh. I didn't know much about this. It reminds me of the one I did a rating of a couple years ago, Sour Grapes, the wine, Rudy, the wine guy who ripped off rich people. And also the Mormon thing that I watched after, which I already knew about because we had done that episode. But it's fascinating and definitely very fresh. Repetition, there was no repetition that was unnecessary. Beating the drum, I'm taking off half a point because, mostly because I just hated that guy from the New York Times. And he said, like, about Ann Friedman, the woman <laughs> the woman who um, ran the gallery, either she was part of it or she's, like, the stupidest person who ever lived. And he says that a couple times. They have Maria Kornikova explaining how somebody can get caught in a con. But there are other people with very rigid views, and I think it's good that they showed all the different views, but I feel like, I don't know if Ann Friedman was complicit or not, but I can see how over 14 years, it's not like, boom, somebody brings in all these paintings and it all happens in a week. So I'm taking away half a point for beating the drum. And I'd just like to say a few more things about the whole thing. There were 10 lawsuits. The gallery had to close after 165 years, but I suspect it would have had to close anyway because Michael Hammer was using all the money for his rich guy yacht shit and everything. There were 10 lawsuits. Nine of them were settled. This one couple, this rich couple, went to court. Oh, and that reminds me of another missing piece, but I'll get to in a minute another thing in missing pieces. But they had bought a Rothko, or a fake Rothko, for $8 million. (laughs) You know, they asked for provenance, and its provenance was a little shaky, but that's not totally unusual, it's explained. But she did have a list of all these experts who vouched for it. Now, a lot of these people were on the documentary and the, you know, their their heels must have been broken from all the walking back they were doing. And these people are just angry, 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 bitter, and they hate her guts. And the woman's, the woman's appalled that Ann Friedman now has her own gallery and is allowed <laughs> to sell art. And my feeling is, if you don't want to buy art from her, don't buy art from her. You know, she's not a pedophile or something. I know. You know, but, but my thing too is, now I know nothing about buying art as an investment or anything else. I have two thoughts about these people who bought the Rothko. First of all, if I were going to buy a used car, I wouldn't take the car dealer's word for it that there was nothing wrong with the car. You get your own mechanic to look at it. You know, you don't do that when you buy a new car, but if you're buying a used car, I can't imagine spending $8 million on a painting. And if I don't like what the experts have said, not having somebody else look at it first, but also the experts vouch for it, 
they it wasn't just Sam Friedman saying this is a Rathco. And the people looked at what these people had said and they chose to spend $8 million on the painting. They felt no sense of their own personal responsibility for it. You you loved this painting. Mm-hmm. You thought it was a Rothko. Do you bear no responsibility for not recognizing it as a fake? And, and the other thing is, which is a much deeper issue, is... Uh, actually, there's two more things. Now, I understand that if people say it's a Rothko or a Jackson Pollock or whatever... You're going to spend all this money, and the name of the artist is part of the thing. But when it all really comes down to it, if you really, if you think this painting is beautiful, if everybody thinks this painting is absolutely beautiful, does it matter who painted it? Is it worth less because hmm. this Chinese yeah. guy painted it instead of Mark Rothko? The um, the third thing I was going to say about that, you know, people are very smug about about Anne Friedman either being really, really stupid or being part of this. But people who are going to con people, and Mar- Maria Kornikova talks about this a little, but it, it's more, they, they know how to pick out their victims. They know how to, to sell it. And also, oh, and here's another missing piece. A guy named Jimmy Andrade, who worked for the gallery, I guess, helping them acquire art, is the one who made the introduction of this woman, Rosales, I can't remember what her first name was, who brought the art. And apparently there was some story that this guy's grandfather had acquired this art in the 40s and 50s and 60s and left it for his son. And it was these unknown Rothkos and Jackson Pollocks and Motherwell who I'm like, the son had no interest in art or anything like that and just wanted to unload them. Their grandson, rather. And so what about this guy that made the introduction? And I think he's dead, but... But part of being taken in by a con is that when the source seems credible, you don't question. Mm -hmm. Also, there were a lot of people who, at the time, were taken in too. But Ann Friedman's the one who's taking the fall. And I felt the... um, the two rich people, I can't remember their last name, some D. Soles or something, who, who ended up going to court were a little disingenuous. Like the woman was shocked when Ab Friedman was about to testify after a few days of trial when they came in and said it had been settled. And she goes, I would have liked to have seen it continue, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wait a minute, you're the one suing her. It can't be settled without you agreeing to it, that. <laughs> so you had to have known yeah, know. it was being settled. You know, so don't act like you didn't know it was being settled as a civil trial. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, It wasn't a criminal trial. They were all pissed off that no criminal charges. The only person the criminal charges were brought against was the woman Rosales, the artist who had painted all these. This Chinese guy went back to China, and apparently in China there's this centuries, centuries long tradition of copying art as a way to learn how to paint, and also as a compliment to the artist. The mistake he made was actually signing them Rothko. <laughs> well, it wasn't yeah, a mistake. Well. He he knew what he was doing. And the woman who was the broker, her boyfriend, the Spanish guy who f- fled back to Spain, is obviously a controlling asshole. And I think he was the mastermind behind the whole thing. But the woman, Rosales, is the only one who, who was charged criminally. And, and the DA in New York, this guy, his name is Jason... Um, Hernandez or Fernandez, I think he looked incredibly familiar to me, said it's notable that she didn't point the finger at Am Friedman and say she was in on it too or anything. 
you know, she just took her lumps and took her yeah. sentence. I, you know, people can decide for themselves what Anne Friedman's role is, but I do think that, and I was thinking this more when I was watching the Mormon thing, and we talked about it when you did the, the Mark Hoffman thing, yeah. is that when people are going to scam someone, they just don't go pick out any person and scam them. I don't know how many galleries these people the you know the con people approached but you find a place that's vulnerable and i wonder for instance if they knew about the financial issues at the nodler if the guy jimmy andrade who seems to me complicit but nobody really talks about him much after the beginning of the documentary if he said look this place will be an easy mark so it's it's very interesting and i my points what is that an eight i think or a 7.5 doesn't really matter i hugely recommend it i watched it twice and found it just as entertaining i'll watch the second time i don't think it will annoy you i think that the things that annoyed me will annoy you like the annoying new york times what annoys me about the whole art selling thing is first of all people that buy it as an investment can go fuck themselves if you like something you you like it why do you want to have a piece of art on your wall is it because you like it or is it because you want other people to know that you paid eight million dollars for it and because you can you know it's just stuff like that and i feel like art shouldn't be in someone's home there's an artist that's important like mark rothko it should be in a museum where everyone can see it and not in your friggin home so you can just lord over everybody that you own it so i have a lot of feelings about it but i don't think any painting is worth millions of dollars and i'm an artist i don't think a lot of things are worth millions of dollars but i don't think a painting is and i I don't think people should be it's hard To have sympathy for the people who were ripped off. I mean, it did cost people money. It is wrong to con people. Yes, it it is. is. But your caveat emptor, if I were going to drop $8 million on any fucking thing, I wouldn't take someone else's word for its worth or whatever I considered its worth. And then be all upset. And it's funny, the point you made. blame other people. The, the, the point you made about that both of us have made, the lawyer and Friedman's lawyer, he's in his office and one of the fake Motherwells is on the wall behind him. And he says at the end, you know, this thing, somebody bought this painting for millions of dollars. And now here it is because Motherwell didn't paint it after all, sitting in my office and it's not worth shit. He doesn't say shit. He was more polite than that, but it's not worth a penny. It's not worth anything. I couldn't sell this. But I do think it does make those points. I think you you get out of the documentary, whatever your belief system is about being conned, about rich people and about art. I think the documentary will have things to support. No, I like it. I mean, I I enjoy con artist stories for some reason. That's why I'm glad they had Maria Kornikova on it because she helped helped give a context that these don't have a lot. I get so tired of, and I heard this on the Mormon thing too, well, you know, the con man is greedy and the people who let themselves be conned are greedy. And that's all there is to it. But like, for instance, Anne Friedman and a lot of the other people in this have a passion for art. She had a passion for art. It was her, it is her. And so it excited her. 
that she mm-hmm. was looking at a Rothcoat that, yeah. that nobody knew existed or a Pollock that nobody knew existed. At the end, when she opened her own gallery, a lot of the people were disgusted by that. And somebody's like, well, couldn't she find something else to do? And I'm, and I'm thinking, why should she? First of all, she's in her probably, I think, 70s. And this has been her entire life. She worked at that friggin' gallery for 32 years. Second of all, she has a passion for art. And that's why she's doing it. Yeah, she got conned, but so did the rest of you fucking people. Yeah, she's not you know? an art. She's not an art expert like the people that uh, said that the paintings right. were real. Right, and she had. She went through a lot of things to get people to make sure the art was credible. And there was one thing where people felt like she should have seen some red flags, but Maria Kornikova points out, and then I saw this too in the Mormon documentary thing. If you're the victim of a scam. And it looks like you're being proved wrong. Psychologically, the response is not to all of a sudden realize you're wrong, but to double down. Yes, you Because do. it's very difficult. And it's not this conscious thing where I'm not going to admit I'm wrong. But it's difficult to make that shift yeah. from something you fervently believed to realizing you were ripped off. And you see the same thing in the Mormon documentary, which I also recommend. Although if I were rating it, I'd take a point away for unnecessary and bad reenactments. But that's something for another day. Ugh. But anyway, it's called Made You Look. It's, oh, I'll have to um, watch it. Definitely worth watching. I might when even I'm watch it a third, again. third time. Mom and Dad might like it too. Yeah, it's just hard to drag them away from MSNBC. Yes. But anyway, and that's, it's getting late, so. Yes. Um, yeah, well, check us out on social media. Oh, Drop yeah. us a Patreon <laughs> donation if if you feel so inclined. Rate us, review us, and um, listen to us again. Yes, thank you, everybody. Good night. Bye-bye. I can hear Khabibi um, purring. Oh, but she's so happy. Okay, leave her there. Just a minute. Khabibi. I'm going to put her outside. She's trying to rip up the paper. Oh, what a bad girl. Come here, you. You're going out. You're going out in the hallway. Oh, she went under the bed, so. Yeah, okay. Just a minute. Good girl. You get on the bed. Okay. Mm, just a minute. Okay. You are going out this time. Aww. You're going out. You have to go out. You're being very naughty. Yes, you are. You can't rip up paper and stuff, okay, honey? You go out here. I'll be done soon. Aw, poor baby. She's so cute.